0: turn to Exodus chapter 2. We'll be on the back end of 2, primarily looking at Exodus 3. And while you turn there, let me say it's a joy to be back with you. I was gone last week for our pillar board retreat. I just want you to know by way of report, sweet time with the guys there that make up that board. And also just want you to know because of your gospel partnership, last year uh, this church had a hand in helping plant 40 new churches all over the world. Uh, That's because of your faithful gospel partnership. The network has grown to over 300 churches in more than 20 countries, and so we just want to say, as as somebody on the staff there, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Uh, I get to step back in the pulpit this week. Uh, My dad was here last week, so you had Aiken the Greater last week, Aiken the Lesser this week. Uh, And then Pastor Dwayne has tasked me with starting this new series in the Torah, particularly in the book of Exodus. He gave me four chapters Uh, to cover we're primarily going to be in chapter three but I told him uh, given how weird the end of chapter four is where you have this scene where Moses' wife comes back in circumcises his son and then throws the foreskin at him I told Pastor Dwayne he could handle that next week if a nagging wife makes you want to go on the roof I don't know what a wife who throws a foreskin at you makes you want to do we will be in the Torah over the next few months and specifically in the next few weeks in the book of Exodus. We're going to focus again on Exodus chapter 3. And so as we turn our attention there, I want to give just some introductory notes about the book and, and we'll just walk, walk our way through it so we'll know what we're diving into. Well, first, it's the second book in this division of the Bible called the Torah or called the law or the instruction It takes place obviously after Genesis The author is the great prophet Moses. This is testified to both by our Lord and by his apostles in the New Testament. Uh, The date is likely somewhere around 1446 BC, but we don't exactly know. The most important thing for us, though, is to understand where it is in the redemptive timeline. It takes place between the time of the patriarchs. They're in this exodus before they will enter into the land that's been promised to their forefathers and establish a kingdom through King David. Now, the book has... Good guys and bad guys. At a human level, it'll be Moses versus Pharaoh or Israel versus Egypt. But behind it all, behind the scenes, you'll see uh, this this play between God and Satan. And in particular, picking up on the theme of Genesis chapter three fifteen, you're going to see the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. We'll see that even in our. Chapters this week. Now, some key themes or events in the book that we're going to cover in the uh, that are going to cover in the rest of the time in Exodus, but are picked up. All of these are picked up in the rest of the Bible. Would be this first the covenant. We're going to see that God is going to be going to keep His covenant promises to Abraham and to their to His offspring, that the offspring that He would make them a great nation, that they would be fruitful and prosperous, and that they would multiply. We're also going to see the Exodus. God is going to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, and that salvific event will become a type of salvation that will be seen throughout the rest of the scriptures that actually will culminate in an even greater Exodus as God will deliver his people, not just from physical slavery, he will deliver them from slavery to sin, a spiritual slavery. So this is a towering moment in the Old Testament. We also see the theme of the mediator. God will use a mediator. He will use one here named Moses as his go-between prophet and deliverer who will speak and act on behalf of God for the good of God's people and for and against their enemies. We're also going to see the Ten Commandments. God is going to, in the book of Exodus, establish a third covenant. He has established the Noahic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. And here, through the Ten Commandments, he will establish the Mosaic Covenant. It will be established, it will be confirmed, it will be broken, uh, and then it will be renewed. And then finally, we're going to see the theme of the tabernacle. The fact that a holy God will choose to dwell in a physical place in the midst of a sinful people. So this is an incredible book that we are diving into. Again, it sets the stage for the rest of the scriptures. It sets the stage for the rest of salvation history. And this morning we're going to focus in particular on chapter 3 and this scene of Moses before a burning bush. And I want us to think on what that means for us. Those of us in this room who have also had an encounter with the living God and I want to set the stage by reading a couple of verses at the end of chapter 2, and then a few verses in chapter 3, and then I want to ask for God's help this morning. Let's start in Exodus two twenty-three, and the prophet Moses writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flaming, fi- flaming of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, "I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of my people Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send." you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt but Moses said to God who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt God said but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Father, now as we come to the time in the service where we particularly focus on your book, Father, I pray that you would have mercy upon me Father, I pray that you would help me to preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people and for the sake of your name. Father, now, as we look at Exodus 3, my prayer, Father, is that you will show us yourself. Father, then would you show us our sin. But Father, ultimately, would you show us our Savior. Father, now, would you please sanctify us in the truth. Father, we know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I heard the story of a man who had claimed to be a Christian, and yet in high school he sort of hung out with a group of guys who were rebellious, wayward, guys who would not identify as Christians at all, so much so that one day at the lunch table as he was hanging out with his friends, he said to them, you know, I'm a Christian. To which one of the friends just responded, you're no more a blankety-blank Christian than I am. And he responded to that in cursing as well back to them, and they just went about their lunch. Now, this man was consumed with sports, particularly with baseball, which I would call the lesser of all the sports. He was consumed with sports. He was not consumed with the things of God. And yet, a couple of years after this lunch experience, as he was playing baseball, as he was pitching at a batting practice, Uh, during this time he threw a pitch and a guy hit a line drive that came right back up the middle, and let's just say it hit him in the groin area. He would later say that that was a pivotal moment in his life, and I I would say so. But that's because that moment would end up changing his direction. In one sense, it would change who he was. My question as we come to Exodus chapter 3 is, have you ever had a moment like that? Have you ever had a moment that changed the direction of your life? An encounter that altered everything about who you are. It altered the direction of your life. That's what's going on in Exodus 3. As we come to a momentous moment in the scriptures, as we come to this encounter in the life of Moses, where God redirects him, where he he repurposes him, he chooses to use him, an imperfect vessel, as his servant for God's purposes in the world. So my main idea this morning, and I want us to think of our own commission in this light, but my main idea this morning is this, to and through a mediator, God reveals who he is and what he will do for his people. To and through a mediator, God reveals who he is and what he will do for his people. We will see this in the breakdown of the chapter as twice he will reveal who he is and then he will tell Moses in light of that what he is going to do. And we will have, again, much to learn, both in looking at our great mediator, but also in our own commission. Now, here's the context. I'm going to give some extended context, given that we're working our way through the book in Exodus 1 and 2. Exodus begins with Abraham's family outside the land of promise. They're in Egypt, and it begins with a note about Joseph's death. We see here something consistent in the Bible that from Genesis 3 on, death reigns, and yet while death reigns, the promises given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that their offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, that promise is not thwarted so much so that in Exodus 1-7, it tells us this, echoing the Genesis 1 mandate, it says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land, meaning Egypt, was filled with them yet we're told there's a new pharaoh who comes on the scene who does not have a relationship with joseph he doesn't know who joseph is and so he fears them he fears how prosperous they are how mighty they might become because of that so he lashes out at them and in chapter one he says let us deal with them shrewdly and he sets over them the text tells us taskmasters to afflict them with heavy burdens And even in this, the text tells of their prosperity, it says this, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Now in this text, and as we think about a Sunday that we normally set aside to talk about the sanctity of human life, the fact that we as believers should be those who desire and honor life from conception all the way to natural death, we should take a look at what's going on here. Pharaoh sees what the Bible tells is a blessing. He sees the multiplication of Israelite babies. He sees it as a curse to him. So he tells the Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua, he tells them, let the Hebrew girls live when they are delivered. But if you see a Hebrew boy, it is to be killed. We find here again, echoes of the war from Genesis three between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But even that doesn't work because these Hebrew midwives disregard Pharaoh's command. In fact, they tell him when he comes and says, what's going on? Why are they still multiplying? They say this, because the Hebrew women are not like your women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And Moses tells us, because of their faithfulness and right kind of fear, God honors them, He gives them families, and they also multiply with children. So on the sanctity of human life Sunday, I want to take a step back and honor these two women, along with all who fight for the value of life in the womb. Notice in the text, if you read Genesis 1, that Shifra and Puah, who one pastor calls the Hebrew Thelma and Louise, have the right kind of fear. They do not fear the one who can cast their body into the Nile. No, they fear the Lord, their God. And then see with eyes of faith who these women are. Believers in this room, those who have been saved and are in the family of God, these are our women. These are our ancestors. Humanly speaking as well, on the last day, we will be raised from the dead, partly because of the work and faithfulness of these two women. I mean, just think about it. Humanly speaking, had they not done what they did, there would have never been a David. Which means there would have never been a Mary, there never would have been a Joseph. These women are to be honored, and they will be honored. In fact, their names will make it through the great burning of the heavens and earth. In fact, their names will last forever because the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Pharaoh's wicked response then to this is that he tells all the Egyptians... When you see a Hebrew sun, you are to throw it into the Nile. And that brings us to chapter 2, where we are introduced to this towering figure of the Old Testament, Moses, who has to have his mother protect him from death by putting him in a basket. The text tells us in chapter 2, interestingly, the Hebrew word for basket is the exact same word used in Genesis 6 through 9 for an ark, as he indeed, Moses, will indeed deliver Israel into a new world. And the irony of ironies, he is taken in by Pharaoh's daughter, he is raised up to become a prince in Egypt. And yet he still identifies with his people. He still tries to protect his people. As in, in chapter two, an Egyptian is trying to kill an Israelite. Moses steps in and kills the Egyptian. And then it tells us on the next day, he sees two Israelites fighting. He tries to step in and they turn on him. They say, who do you think you are? They talk about his killing of the Egyptian, and so he fears this. He fears that it will be known. He fears that Pharaoh will find out about it, so he flees into the wilderness. Pharaoh does find out about it, Pharaoh does want to kill him. So he flees from Egypt to Midian, where he will find a wife. Interestingly, like Jacob and Isaac, he will find one at a well named Zipporah, and he will also there have a son. And that is where the text picks up. He has sojourned in the wilderness for 40 years. And that brings us to Genesis or to Exodus chapter 3. But I want us to note before we read: through it all, the sovereign hand of God, God is the one in control of these events, not the one called Pharaoh who thinks he is a God. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant. Now Moses, verse 1 of chapter 3, was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Here when it says God remembered his covenant, this is, not, it's, this is not saying he forgot his covenant. Rather, he is now getting ready to act on the basis of its promises. In fact, the scriptures are clear. Those who cry out unto the Lord will be the very ones who will be saved. And the first act of God remembering his covenant is that he is going to call this one out. He is going to call Moses out to be his mediator. He's going to give him a new purpose. And chapter 3 begins, and interestingly to me, Moses is writing in the third person. If you're a Seinfeld fan, it reminds me of George Costanza, George George likes spicy chicken. But the reason he's doing that is because what he is recording is a theophany, a special encounter with God. And so chapter 3 begins with the shepherd Moses watching his flock by night in the wilderness, interestingly, at Horeb, or as we will find out, he is doing so at Mount Sinai, which verse 1 identifies as the mountain of God. That is because this place, twice this place, at this place, God will reveal himself to Moses and by extension to his people. Here he will reveal his name and plan and then later in the book he will reveal his law. And it is here we are told Moses encounters this angel of the Lord in a burning bush, a bush that is not burnt up or consumed by the fire. Now, for those of us who have grown up in church, going to vacation Bible school, watching Hanna-Barbera cartoons... This is a true story, and so let's try to put ourselves in the scene as best we can. If you saw a raging fire not burning up the wood in it, it would be of interest to you. More than that, if an angel showed up in that fire, it would be of interest to you. It's important to remember, angels are not precious moments figurines. Getting close to Valentine's Day, angels are not Cupid-like beings in diapers with wings. No, angels are actually an awesome sight. When they show up in the Old Testament, people are oftentimes greatly afraid. Now there's so much going on here, and I want to try to unpack just a little bit of it quickly. This word angel could also be translated messenger of the Lord, and we're going to see throughout the rest of the verses, this angel of the Lord or this messenger of the Lord is actually God himself. And his appearance as fire in a bush that is not consumed seems to be a picture of what is befalling, what is becoming of Israel. They are going through the fire of a trial in Egypt, and yet that fire will not destroy them. That fire will not overtake them. But there's an even greater picture to think on here in the text. Think about this. Just as an insignificant thorn bush is able to, by the suspension of natural law, by by a miracle, it is allowed to house the presence of God without being destroyed. So by God's amazing grace will his people Israel be given his indwelling, purifying, transforming, sanctifying, and commissioning presence without being consumed or destroyed by it. This will remind them of the covenant promises to their father Abraham. We will see this picked up in the future. God will lead them out of Egypt as a pillar of fire. We have seen this in the past in the giving of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 as he passes through the animal sacrifices as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. However, what seems to me most important in this text, maybe even most glorious in this text, is not the sign of a bush that's not consumed by fire. No, it's that a glorious, transcendent, all-powerful God would love his people enough to speak to them. And here he speaks to an unlikely candidate. He does so with a tone of love. The fact that he repeats his name twice would have been a sign of endearment in that culture. God, as it were, calls Moses out of darkness into great light. He calls him to be his mediator, his prophet, who will speak and act on behalf of his people. And nonetheless, though, in verse 5, Moses is told, approach me in a certain way. Approach God with reverence. Do not get too close. Approach him with humility. Take off your shoes as you come. There's a reason something like fire is such a good thing for us. It does so many things for us. But there's a reason why we tell our children, do not get too close to it. It's powerful, yet it can also be dangerous, so much more so with God. He is powerful, but because of his holiness, his righteousness, sinners must be careful how they approach him. In fact, we can only approach him in the ways that he tells us we can. And it says here in the text that this place is holy ground. And the place is holy, not because of anything about the place, Not because of any inherent value of the place itself. No, the place is holy because God has made it so. Indeed, God by his presence makes the things around him holy. And that's what he's doing with his people. It brings up a point of application this morning. We should approach... Worship, as we come together on Sundays, we should approach this worship time with a posture of joy, reverence, and humility. Joy, because of what he has done to make sure we would worship him. Reverence, because of how awesome and holy he is. And humility, because we understand it is only by grace that we are here in the first place. Which leads us to the second part of the text. God has revealed who he is, now he reveals what he will do. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What encouraging verses we see here that God is not distant from the suffering of his people. In fact, the verses say he sees them, he hears them, he knows them. And probably what seems most wonderful to me, he calls them mine. He calls them my people, something that Moses will pick up repeatedly in the book. And because of this, look at what God has done. Because he has seen them, heard them, he knows them, he loves them. Because of that, he says, I have come down to deliver them. Why has God condescended or come down? Because they are his. He in his steadfast covenant love and faithfulness is going to keep his promises. He loves his people. He is faithful to them. So he is going to deal with Pharaoh. And not only is he going to deal harshly with their enemies, he is going to deal graciously with them. He is going to take them out of slavery to a land that he has promised them. He's going to take them to a prosperous land that is spacious and fruitful. It's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Think about that. It's flowing with milk, which produces queso. What a place to be. It is a place of more land and better food, which prefigures the final promised land that we will be a part of if we are part of the people of God. We are told in the Old Testament by the prophets that one day we will come to another mountain where we will eat the finest meat and the finest cheese. In fact, we will eat prime rib and queso for everybody. And then in light of this promise, in light of this, verse 10 is amazing if we take stock of what's going on god could have just come down and by the mere power of his might dealt with egypt but instead he chooses to accomplish his purposes through a human intermediary ironically one who like joseph before him and others who will come later is initially rejected by his people he's been rejected in chapter two just as joseph was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery the same will happen to David. The same will happen to the son of David. They will be rejected by Israel. They will receive blessing among the Gentiles. And then ultimately they will come back in to deliver their people. But look at Moses's response, verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shine shall be for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Moses' response to God is not immediately positive. He asked a similar question to what the Hebrews had asked him in chapter 2 Who do you think you are? Moses here is basically asking, Who in the world am I to do such a great thing? Could be a posture of humility, could be a posture of simplicity. Again, take stock of the moment. How far has Moses fallen? He's been rejected by his own people, and now he is no longer a prince. Now he is a shepherd. And Genesis 46 tells us that a shepherd is an abomination to every Egyptian. Think about this from Moses' perspective. It would be, he's viewing it like this, it would be like a common laborer going before the president to make a demand. Think of the time Dennis Rodman went to Kim Jong-un. The equivalent of a beet farmer named Dwight Schrute showing up in overalls to Putin and saying, let my people go. Yet this is the very one God uses. And how God answers him is amazing to me. He doesn't answer him directly, nor does he say anything about Moses' fitness for the role. No, he simply says... I will be with you. What makes Moses fit for the role? God is with him. God then gives him what he calls a sign for Moses that will verify his empowering presence. He says, on this very mountain, this mountain that is outside of Egypt, you and the rest of my people will soon be right back here worshiping me. These are incredible verses. And point of application then in light of these verses this morning, one that has worked on me. In the service of God, we are to take our eyes off of ourselves and our own giftings and we are to put our gaze on the very one who commissions us. Remember, brothers and sisters, God has entrusted this great treasure to jars of clay and he has done so for a reason to show that the surpassing power is his. That's all over this text. Think about it. From a teaching ministry in our own church, God uses men like my dad. God uses men like me. God uses women in this church like Kara Ecker and Melva Smith and Becky Jones. He uses so many people for his purposes. He even uses a man from Michigan like Pastor Dwayne, who has had an encounter with him. And I love how the theologian Desmond Alexander talks about these verses. Here's what he says. The Lord's reply was, of course, you're not up to the job. I knew that when I chose you for it. The point is not your ability, but mine. Furthermore, the Lord's reaction was not to promise to make Moses adequate, somehow transform him into someone who was up to the task, although that is what he would do in time. What he did promise was the sufficiency of his own presence. In other words, he called Moses to a position of faith, to go into this work not expecting to be a different man, but expecting a sufficient God." He called Moses to believe the promises. And I pray we will as well. Third part of the text, God reveals who he is. Well-known verses. Moses said to God, if I have come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. A lot of speculation here in the text about why Moses asked this question. It's possible given the polytheistic nature of Egypt, they want to know who it is. It's possible because they're in slavery. God's personal and proper name has fallen out of use and would need to be confirmed so that they would follow uh, in what he's going to ask them to do. We don't really know. And that's because why he asked the question is not as important as how God answers it. A person's name in that culture carried special significance because it would be a descriptor of who you are. For instance, the name Nathan means gift from God. Take that for what you will. When I told my wife I was going to use that illustration last night. She laughed at me. My parents are here. You can ask them if I lived up to the descriptor of my name. <laughs> wonder if they ever regretted it. But in that culture, the name identified who you are, which is why the answer I am, or I am who I am is so striking. I am is a form of the Hebrew verb to be. And the significance here is hard to fully ascertain, but God is essentially saying, my name is I be. My name is I exist. One scholar calls this the isness of God. He is the pre-existent, self-existent, one who has always been, who will never change, who is dependent upon nothing. The one, the only one who was never never created, but always existed. I simply am. But here in the context, we need to understand what's happening. He uses the same verb that was used in verse 12 as God promised his presence to Moses. God seems to be reinforcing that he will be with Moses, carrying the idea, I will always be, so I will always be with you. Indeed, it is a precious truth, one that we likely need to be reminded of this morning, one that the people of Israel desperately needed in this moment. The self-existent, transcendent, unchangeable one has so put his affections upon his people and that it, so that that his continuing presence will always be with them, even when it doesn't seem so. God then seems to be giving them his personal name, I am, or the Hebrew word Yahweh, because it recalls the promise itself. It recalls the power to carry out his purposes. He who is will always be with us. And that brings out another point of application for this section. He who simply is will always be with us. It's an amazing truth, one that we will see later picked up in the New Testament as our people are given a great commission. This leads us to the final part of the text, God reveals what he will do, part two. Look at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, uh, God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what you have done in Egypt. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. When you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." God again returns to what he is about to do and he gets more specific. In particular he talks about what's going to happen in the following chapters and he lets Moses in on it. And as with other parts of the scripture he tells him what's going to happen and then everything happens exactly how he said it would. It's a truth that we sang as kids those of us who grew up in the church. We understand he's got the whole world in his hand as Moses undertakes this challenge he needs to remember this. He needs to remember who is in control. It is not with the one with the snake on his headdress no it is the Lord God so he gives Moses this direct and immediate command go gather up the elders bring them together basically tell them what I have just told you and then go to Pharaoh and he gives Moses a reassuring word in verse 18 he says they will listen to your voice yet in verse 19 he tells Moses Pharaoh will not he will not listen to Moses he will not listen to the elders he will not grant what seems to be a simple request The simple request is simply this, let my people have a three-day journey to worship God by making sacrifices. It would have been a significant enough journey that they would make it outside of Egypt so that they could actually worship God and make sacrifices without offending the Egyptians by their sacrifice. We will see this refrain throughout, this request throughout, let my people go so that they can worship me. Think about the irony here. If Pharaoh had granted this simple request, He may have kept Israel, but by denying it, Pharaoh will lose everything. In fact, God says, in essence, it's going to take a mighty hand to make this happen. So I will show him a mighty hand. Whereas one pastor put it by my strong arm, I'm going to strong arm the Pharaoh. So verse 20, God recounts what is about to happen. These plagues that are about to come upon Egypt. And he says, at the end of them, Pharaoh will let you go. And yet it doesn't stop there. Not only will he let you go, I will make sure that the Egyptians prosper you as you go. As you will plunder the Egyptians house, you will get the spoils that normally come from war. And listen to this, you will get the spoils that normally come from war by the women of Israel simply asking for them. God is essentially saying this, before I deliver you, the women of Israel are going shopping. This is how dominant the victory of our God will be against those who have enslaved his people and thrown his children into Nile. It will be so dominant. There will be such a reversal of things that God is going to work in such a way that the women, the non-combatants of war, will gain such favor with the Egyptians that they will just give over to them their silver and gold if it will mean that they leave the place of Egypt. God has already promised Abraham in Genesis 15 that this will come to pass. They will give the Israelites everything they need to make sure they can survive in the wilderness. In fact, they will give them everything they need to build the tabernacle. And that's where our text ends. It ends with Israel's plight, with Moses' commission, with God's promises to act. And yet, even in this, as we look at this Exodus deliverance, we need to understand that this deliverance is only temporary because it's simply deliverance from a temporal, physical bondage. And yet, as I said at the beginning, it prefigures an even greater deliverance. In fact, we find ourselves, like the children of Israel, in need of God, in need of a mediator who would act to deliver us not from physical bondage but spiritual slavery, slavery to sin and death. And thankfully, the New Testament tells us that one greater that Moses has come. See, this story reminds us of one that will take place centuries later. We will find another vicious ruler, another vicious king who seeks to kill the sons of Israel. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah would talk about that day. He says, a voice is heard and Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because her children are no more. And yet in the first century, there will be another baby boy. There will be another Hebrew son. Our great deliverer will be protected from the king's hand. Ironically, his parents will flee and sojourn to Egypt in order for him to be spared. God is preparing another mediator who will play out the same pattern. Initially, he will be rejected and handed over by his own. He will receive blessing among the Gentiles, and then he will come back to save his people. Ultimately, he will come back not only to proclaim freedom to the captives, he will make sure it happens as he he leads them out of sin and death. He will be the one who the New Testament tells us will plunder the strong man's house. Paul tells us in, Ephesus, he said, in Ephesians, he says this, he will lead captivity captive and he will then give gifts to men as he has plundered death itself. And yet he is not just greater than Moses. He is one with the one who appeared in the bush as he will appear on another mountain. And on that mountain, Peter, James, and John will behold him in all of his glory. And yet the mystery and grace of the incarnation is that his divine nature does not overtake his human one. For God himself will be pleased to tabernacle among us and we will behold his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There will be another who will be challenged by the religious leaders and he will tell them this, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Our great deliverer has linked himself with God and think about his name. His name means Yahweh saves. His name is Yeshua. Jesus, who Paul tells us, God became man in order to redeem man. In fact, he would tell his brother Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who has given himself as a ransom for all. And how does he bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man? He does so at another mountain, at a hill called Golgotha, where he brings God and man together, where he brings sin and holiness together, where he brings wrath and grace together at the cross, as there his perfect sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God, satisfies the holiness of God against our sin, and then in his grace, he extends his perfect righteousness to sinners like us, because there at the cross, he deals with our enemy. deals with the one who accuses us and holds over us sin and death. There at the cross, he crushes the one who has a snake-like head. He deals with our captive. He deals then with our captivity to sin. He deals with the final consequence of it, death itself, as he will take a three-day journey through death and he will come out on the other side, alive, vindicated, and victorious. Now through him, We understand, as we see in this text, no one has ever seen God, but because of him, we have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we've already read about it in Philippians 2, his personal name, Yahweh saves, Yeshua will be the one that stands forever, to which every knee will bow. Which is why we hold out an invitation to those in this room who may not be Christians We want you to know he keeps his promises. He provides for sinners. In fact, this text is telling us that he is patient with sinners. All you have to do to take hold of his great delivering power, all you have to do to become an object of his gracious love is to humble yourself. Look at him with reverence and all, humble yourself, confess your sin, repent of your sin, turn to him in faith and faith alone. Indeed, if the only self-existent one would make a way for you to be in right relationship with him, that should be the most important thing about you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we would love to talk with you about what it looks like to turn to him in repentance and faith. And then believers, how do we respond to this message? What will it mean for us who have had an encounter with the great I am? What will it change about us that we have had an encounter with the living God. He has transferred us from great darkness to great light. He has saved us from sin to singing. He has saved us from wrath to worship and witness. He has saved us from death to life. He has saved us from a curse unto a commission. And like Moses here, and like our brothers in the first century as they faced the Jewish leaders, the only thing we need as far as ability, the only thing we need as far as fitness for the task is simply this, they were with Jesus. Or maybe better yet, Jesus is with us. He promises us even to the end of the age. You know, encounters and events change us. They repurpose us. They redirect us. They even commission us. The man I mentioned at the beginning who had been straying from God to the point he would be mocked at a lunch table was the man who preached to you last week. My father's now been used to train thousands of people for gospel ministry. It's true that God God uses things like burning bushes and things like baseballs to turn his people around for his purposes. And even more than that, God uses his word and the most significant life-changing event we could ever put our focus on. It's what we celebrate every Sunday that he brought his son back from the brink and his son has set his affections upon us so that he would save a people who would be zealous for his glory. The promise he makes to his people is that resurrection that's his will one day be ours. In fact, he will usher us into a promised land that will be flowing with things like milk and honey, but even better things like queso and prime rib. All because he has set his affections upon us. Which is why I love this quote from John Newton. I close with this because I think it flows so well with the I am nature of Jesus. And here's what he says. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Father, we thank you for your life-changing word. We thank you that you've given us stories along the way, like the Exodus, to help us understand even more fully what you have done for us in the cross. Father, now as we turn to a demonstration of the cross and the Lord's Supper, my prayer is that you would transfer us from one degree of glory to another and that you would use us for your purposes in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name.